If we've not met, uh, my name is Matt Lemoyan, and I serve as the, the pastor here of Liberty Church. Uh, it's a joy to have you with us this morning. And if you have Bibles, you can go ahead and make your way to the book of Psalms. It's right near the middle of your Bible. Uh, if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles that Rachel mentioned a moment ago, uh, page 463 is where you will find the 33rd Psalm, which is what we'll be in today. I've referenced this, uh, this film here before, but I was reminded of it again this week. In 1990, uh, the movie Awakenings came out, and in that movie, Robin Williams plays Dr. Malcolm Sayer. He's a neurologist who is given the responsibility to care for several patients who are in a catatonic state. Uh, one of those patients is played by Robert De Niro, and De Niro's character in that movie is a grown man who really has not spoken at all or really done anything since he was a young child. Dr. Sayer uh, attempts an experimental treatment, an experimental drug on De Niro's character, and the, and the drug works. And what plays out from there in the film is that this man, who has been essentially in a coma for his entire life, begins to experience life for the first time. And because it's all so new to him, because it's all so fresh, he doesn't take any of it for granted. He brings this joy, he brings this appreciation into everything that, that he does. And it do, he does that so much so that it really propels a different sort of awakening in Dr. Sayer himself. There's a little bit of a play on words in the title of the film, Awakenings. By the end of the film, you're left asking, well, who is really awakening whom in this movie? Because on the one hand, you have this doctor who has brought this comatose patient back to life. And on the other hand, that patient's newness of life brings about a kind of revival, waking up Dr. Sayer from his own malaise, from his own callousness to life. Every time I think of that movie, I immediately think, I am Dr. Sayer, and that we are Dr. Sayer. That, that it is so easy to live our lives in a functionally catatonic state, where we are dull uh, not only to, to the beauty of life, but also dull to the corruptions and to the perversions of that beauty. And this doesn't happen simply by accident or, or happenstance. As we're considering in this series, we're constantly being formed into the image of whatever it is that we devote our lives to. And so when that's not Jesus, when that's not the God of all creation, the competing narratives that we devote ourselves to, they make us, they form us, in us, this catatonic state. They make us catatonic to the reality of God. And we become formed instead into these cheap counterfeits and eventually settle into the equivalent of a, a spiritual coma. So we must be called out of that catatonic state. Initially, this happens as we are, for the first time, awakened to the reality of God. And that's when we become his worshipers. We put our faith and our trust in God. We become his worshipers. But then we must be called again over and over again, out of that catatonic state. We must be reawakened over and over again to the reality of God. And if you've never considered it before, this is why when the church gathers, it begins with a call to worship. The call to worship is meant to reawaken us from our functionally catatonic state. Worship pastor named Zach Hicks puts it this way. He says, all throughout the week, we find ourselves tossed about in the sub-reality of sin and brokenness. In other words, what he's saying there is that sin means that things are not the way that they're meant to be. And we're, we're, we're immersed in that throughout our week. So Hicks continues on and he says, In a sense, we can forget God. We can forget his promises to us in Christ. We can forget who we are. 
we can forget that we're designed for union and communion with our maker. And this forgetfulness allows us to worship lesser things, people, money, possessions, prestige, the perfect life. The call to worship is a jolt back into reality. It is a bucket of cold water on our world-induced trance. So the call to worship is so much more than the beginning of a worship service. The call to worship forms us in the rhythm of being reawakened. The rhythm of once again attending to God. Because as you know, as I know, as God knows, we need to be reawakened far more frequently than just once a week on a Sunday morning when we gather. We need this many times in in any given day of our lives. And so if words like catatonic uh, or comatose or malaise describe the condition of your life before God, then as as we begin this morning, just let me say three things to you. One, you're not the only one who's in that place. This happens uh, in the Christian life, and it doesn't mean that you are somehow a uniquely bad Christian or uniquely ill-equipped as a follower of Jesus. It's important that you know that, that that there will be many people in this room who will be able to say, yeah, that's actually really where I am right now in this moment. So hear that. Second, though it's normal This is not what life before God, life with God, is meant to be. And even more importantly, that that malaise, that catatonic state has been formed in you. As Christians, we can easily, we often do make the mistake that there's a neutral state of existence. But there really isn't. We're always being formed. So the danger is that when we experience this malaise or we experience this spiritual coma, that we just accept it, we write it off, we call it a season And then we passively hang back for a different season to arrive. But even that passive hanging back, that is forming us. And what it almost always forms is a reinforcement of that malaise, of that catatonic state. And years later, you can realize you've actually now become the the spiritual equivalent of De Niro's character in Awakenings. You've lived uh, most of your life in a coma You've lived most of your life not communing deeply with God, not drinking fresh water from the inexhaustible well of God's salvation. And so therefore, the third thing that I will say to you this morning is that you can be, and by the grace of God, you will be reawakened to the reality of God, called back, called again to worship. And no matter how deeply you've been formed into that malaise, into that catatonic state, the grace of God is calling you back. And perhaps, maybe, even some of that will begin in these few precious moments that we have together this morning, looking at the Word of God in the 33rd Psalm. So I invite you to listen now with open ears to this book that we love. This is the 33rd Psalm. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the water of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. 
For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Lord, open our hearts and our minds, and we pray this morning that by the power of your Holy Spirit that we may hear and we might receive your word with joy. Amen. Amen. Psalm 33 begins with three verses uh, that call God's people to worship. And it ends with three verses that talk about the posture of God's people, waiting, glad, trusting, hopeful, this posture as they have been reawakened to the reality of God. So those are the bookends of Psalm 33. In between are all of these reasons to praise God, all of the reasons for this posture of God's people. So to borrow Zach Hicks' image that that I quoted from just a minute ago, these middle 16 verses really constitute that bucket of cold water that wakes us up from our world-induced trance. So I want to step our way through as much of this as we can uh, in the time that we have left this morning. First, look at those opening verses, those first three. This is really Psalm 33's own call to worship. It has a call to worship within the psalm itself. And the psalmist is calling people, as it says, to shout for joy to praise God, to give thanks to him, to make melody, to play skillfully on instruments. And in verse 3, it says this key line, it says, sing to him a new song. Here's a really important distinction. In the kingdom of God, newness is not novelty. Newness is renewal. In the kingdom of God, newness is not novelty. Newness is renewal. We talked about last week that one of the false narratives that we are formed in, especially in our cultural moment, is novelty. In other words, if it's new, it's better. If it's new, it's worth paying more attention to. But the psalmist here doesn't say, sing to God a novel song. In fact, as the rest of the psalm unfolds, the content of this song is old stuff, as in creation of the world, old So when we're called to worship, when we're called to sing a new song, what that means is that we are to wake up again to the eternal realities of God. That we're to be renewed in what has always been true, what has been most true about the world since its inception. To sing again as if it's the first time we've ever sung it. So the call to worship is really anything but rote, empty ritual. It's a call to a fresh taste of God's eternal glory and God's eternal grace. We don't ever uh, graduate past this. 
which is so important because when we find ourselves in those catatonic states spiritually, it's easy to believe that the way out of that is novelty, to read another new book, to try another new practice, to to go through some kind of new experience. By itself, all that will do is begin to form in you an addiction to novelty. Books, practices, experiences, approaches, all of those things can and are great helps to life with God. But they are not the remedy. The remedy is to actually return to Jesus, our first love. The remedy is to return to three of the most foundational, fundamental realities of life. Who God is, what God has done, and who you are in God's eyes. And that's why the psalmist writes about those very things as the rest of the psalm unfolds. So in verses 4 and 5, the psalmist focuses on who God is. And it says that, that he is the one whose word is upright. The one who is completely and perfectly faithful in all of his work. The one who loves righteousness and who loves justice. The one who fills the entire earth with his steadfast love. When is the last time that you just paused and spent some moments contemplating who God is? Not skipping ahead to what God has done, although that's a very worthwhile thing to think about too. Not skipping ahead to to what you need or what you want from God, which is usually, most often, uh, the substance of our interactions with God. I mean just pausing and contemplating God. The eternal three in one. The embodiment of love. The embodiment of truth. The embodiment of faithfulness and justice and goodness. The one who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. Even like we sung about this morning, the one who just always has been. The great I am. We get a, a substantial, yet ever so brief opportunity to do that in our call to worship each and every Sunday. So let those few moments that we get to do that together in community whet your appetite for more. And if this has been something you have not done in a long time, then I would encourage you to do this sooner than later. Sit in Scripture, consider just who God is. The Psalms, Psalms like Psalm 33, Psalm 96, they're great places to do that. When you do that, when you do that, it might, in that moment, bring about a deep sense of peace, Uh, and joy, and astonishment in who God is. It might, on the other hand, so be prepared for this too, it might bring a deep sense of discomfort. It might bring anger. It might bring despair. It might bring terror. But what I would say to you this morning is whatever that elicits, you are on the right road. Because whatever it is, whatever that elicits, you are now attending to the God who is there. The real danger is not that you will have an incomplete or, or an incorrect thought about God, the real danger is that you'll pay no mind to God at all. And that you'll allow yourself to, because of that, be formed in a narrative where God is not at the center, where God is not God. As we attend to God, even when our response is a response of despair, even when our response is a response of doubt, that is the road to drinking again from the inexhaustible well of God's grace. Once the the psalmist has established who God is, he proceeds in verses 6 and following to write about what God has done. And he goes all the way back as he does that to Genesis chapter 1. God spoke and the world came to be. By his word, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, he made all the host of heaven. 
And he goes on to say he commands it. It stands firm. So not only did God create all things, he also upholds his creation. He sustains his creation. Because God has done this, because this is God's world, it is his to narrate. It's his work and it's his story around which everything else is meant to revolve. So as the psalmist says, part of the work that God has done, part of the work God does, part of the work God will continue to do is to bring the counsel of the nations to nothing. To frustrate the plans of the peoples. Because it's God's counsel, it's God's plans that stand forever. An author named John Davis in a book called Worship and the Reality of God says it this way. He says, In the call to worship, we realize that the worship service is no merely human meeting, planned and controlled by our human agendas, but a special meeting called by God on his divine authority for his purpose of meeting with his people. We are called to lay aside our personal agendas, to focus our attention on the unseen God, and to yield to him our full awareness and attention. So the call to worship is really meant to reorient us to reality, to call us back from those competing, uh, competing plans and the competing counsel and those stories that, that are not the story of God that we devote ourselves to. So it's not always enough to affirm what is true. It's not always enough to just say, yeah, this is God's story. Sometimes we must also explicitly identify and reject the lies. And that's why down in verses 16 and 17, the psalmist gets even more specific And he exposes some of the false hopes and foundations that we're prone to trust instead of God. He says, kings trust their armies and warriors trust their strength. But those are false hopes for salvation. It might not be armies. It might not be strength for you. We all have our own false hopes that we trust. Uh, We trust political parties. We trust military strength. Uh, We trust the good neighborhood's that we try to maybe live in, if that's you. We trust the good education we try to give to our children, if that applies to you. We trust our ability to earn an income and what those, what those dollars can procure for us. And all of those things are important considerations in life. It's just that none of those are genuine hope for salvation. But in our day-to-day existence, they often become, functionally, our hope for salvation. We become formed in whatever it is that we hope in. So we become formed into people who are fixated on creating safety and security and comfort for ourselves rather than people who are faithfully following God and being formed in his image. The call to worship, remembering that it is God who spoke the world into existence, puts all of those false hopes, all of the plans and counsel of the peoples and the nations in their place and calls us again to put our hope in God alone. Just like then the flow of Psalm 33, in worship we start with God. We start with who God is. We start with what God's done. Because to start with us would actually form us in a self-centered, narcissistic understanding of the world. But this is important too. Once we establish that this is about God, that he is at the center, that the story is his to narrate, part of the call to worship is also to be reawakened to the immense value and worth that he bestows on you, on each one of us. The call to worship is a reawakening to the reality of God, but then it is also a reawakening to the reality of who you are in the eyes of God. Listen again to verses 12 through 15. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. 
The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the heart of them all and observes their deeds. And then down to verse 18 and 19. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Worship is, even as it is devoted to God, it's a reawakening to our true identity. Uh, Any given day, any given week, we're prone to pride and self-exaltation, thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought, or despair, self-abasement, thinking too lowly of ourselves. Even more deceptively, we try to set that up as some kind of spectrum and find some kind of balanced midpoint between pride and despair. But that whole spectrum between pride and despair is a flawed one. Why? Because whether you focus on how great you are or how terrible you are, the eyes are on you. Your eyes are on yourself. And you're beginning with yourself as the starting point, and you're trying to take that and and somehow... uh, Use that as the lenses through which to view and to understand God. In the true story of the world, in God's story, we begin not with ourselves, but with God. And that means also that we begin not with our own estimation of ourselves, but with God's view of us. And what Psalm 33 says is that the eyes of God are on you. In two ways. One He looks down from heaven and he sees all the children of man. He sits enthroned and looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. These are what we might call the knowing eyes of God. That he sees and he knows all of the people that he has made. And two, it says down in verses 18 and 19, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, those who hope in his steadfast love. These are what we might call the saving eyes of God the kind of looking upon us that means our deliverance from death. So let me ask you an all-important question this morning. What is God's view of you? What is God's view of you? Who are you in the eyes of God? Christians, including this Christian, can be guilty of not going back far enough in the story of God. It doesn't begin with sin and enmity between God and humanity. When God spoke humanity into existence, he imparted his own glory, he imparted his own grace into human beings. That's what it means to be image bearers of God. Now, sin fractures that pervasively, but it doesn't fracture that completely, which means some of that original, good, imparted glory remains. And God, in creating us this way, has written eternity onto our hearts, as the author of Ecclesiastes says, so that every single one of us might say, along with St. Augustine, that our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. So whether you're here this morning, whether you've ever paid attention to God or not, and whether you sit in your seat this morning inclined to the things of God, or really hostile and violently opposed to the things of God, the knowing eyes of God are upon you. He knows you. And he desires in that knowing of you, in in that original glory which he imparted to you as his image bearer, he desires that you would experience the fullness of life with him. Of course, as we narrate each week in our services, sin has broken and continues to break our communion with God. And at times, Christians, including this Christian, can be guilty of downplaying or diminishing just how much sin has fractured the original good design 
of God's world. And just how much separation sin creates between a holy God and a rebelling humanity. The, the bigger deal that sin is in our perception, likewise, the bigger deal the salvation of God will become. So if sin is a small problem, then in turn, the salvation of God is just a nice gesture. But if, on the other hand, sin is death, if sin separates us from God both now and into eternity, then salvation from that sin is a huge deal. It's not just a nice gesture. It is our very life. And this is the good news of the story of God, that though sin kills and destroys, God saves That through the person of his own son, Jesus Christ, he enters into the pervasiveness of sin and he takes both that sin and God's judgment against that sin upon himself, delivering, as the psalmist says, our very souls from death. So for all who trust in this finished work of Jesus, not only are the knowing eyes of God upon you, the saving eyes of God are upon you. In the New Testament, the, the Greek word for church is ekklesia, And it means the called out ones, the called out ones. So the call to worship reminds us of our identity as the ones who have been called out of death by God himself. It reminds us that we are treasured and loved by God. First, in that he knows us and he's created us in his image, but also that that we are so treasured and loved by God that he looks upon us with the eyes of salvation and he calls us out of death back into life with him. So men and women, this is God's view of you. This is who you are in the eyes of God. He created you for himself to be known by him and to know him and to commune with him for eternity. And he's taken it upon himself to provide the way through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let that, especially if it's just been hard for you to see lately, let that recalibrate your view of yourself. And as you are reawakened to the reality of God, know that the eyes of this God are upon you. So you are free to keep your eyes off of yourself. And rather than pride or self-exaltation, or rather than despair and self-abasement, or rather than trying to somehow find a balanced midpoint between the two, learn to look at yourself through the very eyes of God. That you are his beloved creation called out from the death of sin. The psalm closes with God's people waiting for God, glad in God, trusting in the name of God and claiming God's steadfast love for themselves. And it's really meditating on these three things, who God is, what God has done, and who we are in the eyes of God. That is what forms this kind of posture in us, this glad, trusting, hopeful posture in us. So as a practical takeaway from from this time in Psalm 33 this morning, let me call you to something. That that just as we begin each of our worship services this way, begin your day with some form of a call to worship. Doesn't have to be lengthy. Doesn't have to be formal. Can be reading a psalm or another text of scripture. Can be a prayer. Something that reorients and reawakens you to the reality of God. Whatever reason it is that you will think of right now in this moment to not do that, your job, your kids, your need just for more sleep because you're tired, think about it this way. Your soul cannot afford to see this as a luxury. It's not a luxury to contemplate 
God. It's as necessary to life as the air that you and I breathe. So it must become a priority that we begin our days attending to God, not for the sake of checking a box, but so that we might be renewed in his grace, that we might be formed in his story over and against all of the competing narratives that we are going to encounter every single day. And just as you begin your day, end your day with some version of the same. Bookend your day with a recalibration, a reawakening. Because we know our own frame, or if, you're, if you don't know your own frame, you will. Something will test that soon in your life. We're fickle and forgetful worshipers. So every day in the course of that single day, we begin in that day to devote ourselves to the worship of something else. We begin to devote ourselves to counterfeit gods and being formed in the images of gods who are not gods. So even as you prepare for sleep, pause and attend to God. Build that into the rhythms of your life. In the rhythms of your life, mirror the truth that God gets the first and the last word. What that will do by the grace of God is reinforce you being formed into the image of Jesus, and it will help purge the toxicity of those formations that seep in so quickly each and every day. And as I say this, I'm not speaking to you from a place of strength in this. I'm speaking to you and asking you to join me in doing something that I need to grow in. Um, I've, I've experienced, and, and this is tutel, truly by the grace of God, I've experienced the real benefits of attending to God consistently in the morning. I don't do the end of the day well. I don't do the end of the day well. Um, too many nights I end my day by eating something unhealthy, um, maybe drinking a beer, and dozing off on the couch while the TV is turned on. That happens probably more days than it doesn't in my normal routines of, of life. And don't hear what I'm, what I'm not saying in this. Watching TV, eating foods that are unhealthy, uh, drinking beer, that's not wrong in and of itself. There are ways to enjoy these things as God's, good, as God's good, good gifts. But the question is, as that becomes, if that becomes a regular practice, what is that forming in me? Beyond the, the potential physiological impact, you know, how that can negatively affect sleep and rest, the more important issue is the spiritual coma that it can induce, and it honestly at times has induced. See, it's never just happenstance. It's never just accidental. We're always being formed. And that routine of mine forms me in a narrative that says, yes, I need God's grace, I need God's strength to begin the day. But at the end of the day, Rest, relaxation, feeling like I've done enough to, to call this day done, that's now on me. That's now in my hands to work for myself a way to rest and relax. That's not the narrative, though, of the story of God. Instead, that's actually, for me, functionally living my life like a deist. Deists believe that God created everything, but that he basically winds up the clock, uh, sets the world in motion, and then takes his hands off and just lets things play out. That's not the gospel. That's not Christianity. Uh, that's not the story of God as it's been revealed in Scripture. It is the way, when I'm in that routine, that I'm functionally living my life. So this is my you know, present day, uh, present week repentance of this. And it's my recognition of just how easy and deceptively it is to be formed in false narratives of the world and formed slowly but surely into a catatonic state. So I assume that as it happens in my life, it can and does also happen in yours. Different specifics, no doubt, 
But if and when you find yourself in that, if you would say, yeah, I'm in that place of a spiritual coma or malaise this morning, consider how it is that that has been formed and reinforced in you. And consider how, by the grace of God, a call to worship, not just on Sunday morning, but really each and every day of your life, might reawaken you to the reality of God, that you might be formed more and more into the image of Jesus. And I'll close with this, just in case you're prone to think this as you leave here today. The call to worship is not a religious plan for personal transformation. It's not another self-help human effort to improve your life with a Christian spin on it. It is instead a tuning and a retuning your heart to the truest things about the world. It is a calling. It is calling upon the God who calls you. And it is seeking after the God who seeks after and has sought after you. It is lifting your eyes to the God who looks down upon you. And it is having the audacity to come near to the God who in Christ has come near to you. So church, come and let us worship the God of our salvation. Taste again of the joy and the awe and the gladness and the hope that is held out to you because you are caught up into the life and the story of God. And reawakened, let us sing a new song to him. Amen. Let me pray. Jesus, we, we see the weakness of our frame and we acknowledge that we, even if we pretend to think that we can exist in some kind of neutral state, that we are being formed into something all the time. Help us to see where it is that we are being formed into false narratives, into counterfeit gods. And I pray that you would, by your spirit, do powerful work in our hearts, not only to see those things, but to help us perceive the beauty of the real reality of the world, the reality that you are there and who you are, the reality that you have acted in this world and in our lives to provide a way of rescue for us, and that through Christ and through the ongoing work of the Spirit in our hearts, we might be every single day reawakened to your presence, to your work, to your view of us, and that we might live our lives truly in sync with what is most true about the world because it's you. And I pray that this practice of gathering and worship every week and all the pieces that we do in that would, would form us in this, would help us to really rehearse what is true. I pray that coming to this table, as we're about to do, would be again a fresh taste, even in a physical, tangible way, a fresh taste of your grace that we need as we are a, a called to sing a new song, that we need to be strengthened again by your very grace. And so we come needy, but we come hopeful that you will continue that good work you've begun, that you will stir in, up in us a new song of praise to you. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.